0: Welcome to Day 37 of The Story That Changes Everything. Today's readings are Leviticus chapter 16-18 through 18 and Psalm 16. Here's some thoughts to guide your reading for today. It appears that chapters 16 and 17 form the literary center of the book of Leviticus. The book began with chapters on rituals, the priests, and then purity. And now, after chapters 16 and 17, it will end with chapters devoted to those same issues Only now in reverse, purity, then priests, and then rituals. Chapter 16 is devoted to what's called the Day of Atonement, or what in the common English Bible gets called the Day of Reconciliation. When I'm working and writing, I tend to be a piler. I have stacks of books and piles of papers all around me. In fact, my office, both at home and at church, can at times be a disaster area. However, I can only take it that way for so long, and When I finally had enough, I take a day, I clean it out, reorganize, throw stuff away. And that's the picture we get here regarding the tabernacle. The priests have been doing their work, the regular sacrifices have been taking place, but among the people, various issues have begun to pile up. Verse 21 lists three different kinds of sin, offenses, rebellious sins, and all the other iniquities that have piled up among the people. In contrast is God's holiness. In fact, The term holy, or some variation of it, gets used 16 times in this chapter. If God is going to remain with these people, then these piles and stacks of sins cluttering everything up have to be dealt with. At the center of this unique annual ritual are the two goats, one determined by lot for sacrifice and the other then sent into exile. There's been a lot of scholarly speculation connected to the use of the term or identity azazel with the goat that is sent away the name could be connected to an ancient wilderness spirit figure. If this is the case, what we may see is Israel's redefining of a religious ideology or practice taken from other cultures, much like the church has done with Christmas or Easter, taking this practice and reshaping it with God's gracious nature in mind. The name may also have emerged from the deserted place to which the goat that now carries the sin of the people was sent. So rather than being named for a spirit, it's named for a place. But no matter its origin, in the text and the practice of the people, this name, Azazel, has come to mean a scapegoat that carries the sin and the guilt associated with it far away from the community of faith and from God's holy presence at its center. What is so beautifully pictured in these practices on the Day of Atonement is, on the one side, the costliness of grace, but on the other side, that being met with the absolution and the removal of our guilt. Chapter 17 further explicates the nature of the blood sacrifice. It's important to note that the blood represents life. It's not so much the death of the sacrifice that makes the atonement, but it's the offering of life through its blood. The text says, the blood is life. I know that's a strange idea, but maybe it can help us if we think about it through the lens of the Eucharist or Lord's Supper. When we gather around the Lord's table, we certainly are reminded of the death of Christ, but what we are partaking of as we partake of these elements is actually we are taking the life of Christ into us, and that's what's making all the difference and changing us from the inside out. Also, in this chapter, are warnings about not sacrificing animals away from the tabernacle. It may be that these codes address the concerns related to the temptations of the surrounding idolatries. The question when we sacrifice is who's the source of life and the goodness for the people? If we sacrifice out in the wilderness and not at the tabernacle, perhaps we think it's the Baals who are the supplier of life or the various spirits out in the wilderness. But when they bring it to the tabernacle, they recognize, no, it is Yahweh that is the source of life. Now that we've looked at these two centerpiece chapters on the Day of Atonement, we now in chapter 18 return to questions of purity. And here, in particular, practices related to people's sexuality. It is interesting that these descriptions begin by acknowledging that the imaginations of the people related to these practices are caught between Egypt, the place that they left behind, and the Canaanites, the place to which they are headed. One of the ways the uniqueness of the life of God's people as a community will be marked is by the way they live out their sexual ethics. The instructions begin with several, perhaps overly specific, rules related to rejecting incest in many different forms. The people lived in large communities of extended family systems, and the concern here is that the lines and boundaries between these family systems remain clear and that the community can then live with integrity and at peace with one another. In verses 20-23, through a rapid succession of damaging sexual and family-related practices to avoid are given. They are to reject sexual intimacy during a woman's menstruating cycle, adultery with another person's spouse, child sacrifice, same-sex intimacy, and any forms of bestiality. It's important that we not simply try and transpose these various codes of behavior directly into 21st century life. We certainly should not ignore their significance and what they're trying to reveal about God's purposes for our most important relationships. But it's not a good hermeneutical or interpretive move to treat all of Leviticus as we've been doing contextually, but then take these three or four verses out and put them into our century without contextualizing them also. However, I do think there are two or three things that we can take from this chapter to help guide how we live out this aspect of our lives in holiness even today. First, it seems clear that God wants His people to pay attention to various lines of commitment and covenant connected to family, to biological sex, and even to the distinction between creatures. Even in areas like sexual intimacy, there's a grain to the universe that God desires His people to live within, And to live against that grain can, and often does, create various levels of discord. Secondly, these codes seem to try and orient God's people around the possibility of new life. Part of the built-in nature of sexual intimacy is the possibility of procreation, of being co-creative partners with God. There's certainly an aspect of sexuality that's intended for intimacy and joy between spouses, whether that leads to having children or not. But there's a part of me that feels like in a day and age where, for various reasons... Sexual intimacy has been so separated from the possibility of having children that I think we need to reevaluate these texts and think about what does it mean for us to be a people who are open to and celebrate the possibility of new life because of the love that God has invited us to share with one another. And finally, it's clear that our bodies and what we do with them matters to God. It's certainly not the only aspect of holiness, but it's clearly one of the important ways that God's people distinguish themselves as unique in the world. I was thinking about Acts 15, what's called the Jerusalem Council. It's when the Jewish leaders get together and decide if the Gentiles can be let into the community of Christ, and if so, what do they have to do to be part of it? In that decision, many of the ceremonial laws, in fact, a lot of the ones that we're looking at these last few days in Leviticus, in particular circumcision, is not imposed upon the Gentiles. However, they are told that they have to avoid idolatry and they have to avoid sexual immorality. And so whatever we take from these texts, it's clear that what we do with our bodies and how we live in faithfulness to one another will be one of the ways that we reflect our uniqueness as holy people in the world. The psalm for today, Psalm 16, delights in the Lord as a refuge. One of my favorite lines from the psalm is verse 6. The property lines have fallen beautifully for me. This may mean that the psalmist is happy about where he gets to live and the amount of space the Lord has given to him. However, I also think it may be about the lines of demarcation and difference that God has placed in the psalmist's life. There is security in knowing where the lines of goodness and the lines of life are, and that we can live with the grain of the universe and and live a life that is beautiful within those boundaries. In these last couple of chapters through the end of the book of Leviticus, we're in a section that's often referred to as the Holiness Code. As we go through this section, we need to be careful not to ignore the cultural and contextual differences between now and then. However, while doing that, we can't ignore their intent and the kind of unique people God is trying to form in between Egypt, the life God brought us out of, and Canaan, the new creation He is forming in us and through us. So read today's scriptures carefully, looking for things you've never seen before. Listen to what the Spirit might say to you through the scripture today. Journal some of your reflections, questions, and prayers, and learn to live within the boundary lines of God. Our readings for tomorrow are Leviticus chapters 19 through 21. I'll talk to you tomorrow.